0: 2 Samuel 11. I mean, we've been singing about O come, O come, Emmanuel, Advent. Uh, Chris had some wonderful things to say in the call to worship there about what Advent is. This is an unusual scripture. And in fact, Psalm 51 that I just read is, is one that you would normally not hear during the Advent season, right? That's something we kind of want to put off till later, maybe Passion Week or something like that, right? because Advent is, as Chris said, a time of anticipation. It's a time of expectation. It's a time of, of building, a swelling sort of joy. We're looking forward to celebrating the birth of our King, the birth of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, that is God in the flesh, right? God incarnate, God with us. Last Sunday, David, our youth pastor, preached on the promise of God's presence. And he did that from Genesis chapters 12, 15, 18, and 21. And he did that from the lives of Abraham and Sarah. Again, a pretty unusual passage of scripture for an Advent sermon. Well, what about this week? What about 2 Samuel chapter 11? Some of you may have never even read that before. First, let me ask you a question. What comes to mind when you think of King David? First thing, what comes to mind when you think of King David? If we were in the classroom, I'd ask you for a shout it out. We're not going to do that in here. A little too Pentecostal. And uh, I'd probably even write it on the whiteboard, right? But um, what do you think of? Do you think of Goliath? Think of young David slaying Goliath. Or do you think of the Psalms, the fact that David. Uh, wrote nearly half of the psalms that we have. Or what about that great phrase, David was a man after God's own heart. Or how about this passage, Bathsheba. I have never preached an Advent message on David's and Bathsheba's sin until this morning. I won't be able to say that at at the 1045 hour. Now, some of you may have never actually heard read the biblical account of David and Bathsheba. I'm going to do part of that for us this morning. We may have heard someone else's opinion on this, but we've never actually looked at the text. Others, maybe you read it yearly. But we'll all benefit from revisiting the story this morning. So with your Bibles open to 2 Samuel 11, I'm going to read... Not the entire chapter, but I am gonna read portions. We'll start with the first five verses. These will be projected on the screen behind me as well. We'll skip around, I'll let you know where we're going. Listen to the reading of God's word. Second Samuel chapter 11, beginning in verse one. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired, About the woman. And one said, Well, is this not Bathsheba? The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house. Verse 5 And the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am. Pregnant. Skip down in the passage to verse 14. What's happened in the ensuing verses is David tries to cover his tracks. And here's what he orders. Verse 14, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote Skip down to verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What's going on here? i'm struggling to read this passage Uh, as i've been preparing this message over the last uh, week or so i've read and reread this chapter oftentimes late at night early in the morning and i get physically ill when i read this chapter this is a terrible thing that's happening in the story of david the great king well it's even worse when you realize um, some of the context Ramping up to this chapter, if you go back four chapters to chapter 7, I don't invite you to do that now, but I want to call to your attention a couple things. You can do this later. You'll remember that that chapter 7 is a wonderful chapter. Uh, In fact, we have what's called the Davidic covenant that comes out of that chapter. David wants to build a house for God, and instead, God turns it on him, and he says, David, I'm going to promise to build you an eternal legacy. That's going to last forever. In verses uh, 8 and 9 of chapter 7, the Lord of hosts says, I took you from the pasture, David, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And your king, house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever. And then two verses later, David responds. He responds by going into the place of worship, and he sat before the Lord. I love that emphasis on his posture. He just sat before the Lord and says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Then David pours out profuse praise to God for God's goodness. And so for three more chapters, the narrator of the Samuel scroll writes of David's victories over his enemies, even his kindness toward the disabled son of his best friend, Jonathan. And then in this chapter, chapter 11, while his armies are out doing what armies are supposed to do, they should have been led by their king. Instead, verse 1, David remained at Jerusalem. Notice his posture. He's no longer sitting before the Lord. He's just hanging out in Jerusalem. Now, the Bible does not record David's sins to minimize them or to excuse them, but honestly, to reveal the scandal of forgiveness. David's sins are great. But God's power to forgive his sins is greater. That might seem seem offensive to us. It's like, whoa, what is going on here? This is crazy. I hate this chapter. God's grace is scandalous. It's undeserved. And David is right at the forefront of those who don't deserve God's grace. Here's my big idea for today. And it ties in with this uh, sermon series that we're doing for the month of December. Emmanuel, that is the promise of God's presence, is for those who have sinned, like David, and for those who have been sinned against, like Bathsheba. Let's look at two points today. One is based on the, the first part of this big idea. Let's look at... Emmanuel, the promise of God's presence for the sinner, for those who have sinned. David is known as a man after God's own heart, yet in this passage, he's incredibly out of line. Why is that? Well, first and foremost, let's clear, clear the air here. King David is in the line of Jesus. He is an amazing king, the greatest king of Israel prior to the coming of Messiah. But you know what? He is not Jesus. He is not Messiah. And chapter 11 clearly reveals that to us. Look at verse 1 again. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David remained at Jerusalem. Now, we're not told why he remained. The, the, The narrator doesn't go into that, but the narrator makes the point here that his posture has changed dramatically from chapter 7, where he's sitting before the Lord, He's pouring out praise to his covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. The King James says, he tarried still in Jerusalem. I want to shake him. I want to say, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> get on your mule, get on your horse, whatever mode of transportation, and get out there and do what kings are supposed to do, but no. No. He's hanging out in Jerusalem. And so verses 2 through 4, let's look at it again, as hard as it is to hear again and for me to read again. Listen especially for the verbs. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent... And inquired about the woman. And of course, one of his servants says, Well, hey, isn't this Bathsheba? This is Bathsheba. She's the daughter of Eliam. Eliam was was one of his soldiers. In fact, he's the wife of Uriah, another one of your soldiers, the Hittite. But in verse 4, David moves forward with his plan. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then she returns to her house. Until she reports the news, I am pregnant. Notice those verbs saw, sent, inquired, sent, took, lay. This reminds me of Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Cain um, is upset because God has accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his. And The Lord Himself says to Cain in Genesis 4, verse 6, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, then here it is sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. David, sin is crouching at the door. James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 read, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's exactly what's happening with David here. And then verse 15, Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it brings forth death. The picture of James 1, verses 14 and 15 is this picture in 2 Samuel chapter 11. I think it's important to pause here does this sound familiar i mean seriously can you remember a time when you've done the same i have as i've wrestled with this passage i invite you to wrestle with that reality as well this isn't just a story long ago with some interesting historical facts mixed in. No, this is a story that's applicable to where we sit, where we stand today. Look again at the last verse of chapter 11, the very last sentence. This, this verse, 27, is what I would like to call a kind of a hinge verse in the narrative. But the thing that David had done displeased The Lord. (laughs) That statement right there flips the script on David's carefully choreographed deceit. This has been going on the 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 previous narrative for at least nine months, if not close to a year, that David has been figuring out how to cover up his sin, cover his tracks, so he wouldn't be found out. But there's good news. There's real good news, in fact. If you look at the next chapter, uh, chapter chapter 12, the very first verse. We see Emmanuel for the sinner. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Of course he did. (laughs) Because that's what God does. God pursues David. This is God's character. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers of uh, the United Kingdom years ago said, God does not permit his children to sin successfully. <laughs> Since creation, God has desired to draw near to us. That's the point of creation. That's why Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created the world in which we live and created the capstone of creation, namely human beings, so that we would be in fellowship with him, so that we would be in a relationship with him. God has always desired to draw near to us. And we see this in the garden, right? After Adam and Eve have sinned and dragged the rest of us in humanity with them into that pit of sin, into that fall, what does God do? He comes again in the cool of the day and he's searching them out, he is pursuing them. Some of you know my favorite passage in the New Testament is Luke chapter 24. Jesus does the same thing with the two disciples who were going the wrong direction after they learned of the news of Jesus' resurrection. They're headed home to Emmaus. And what happens? Jesus meets them on the road. He pursues them because that's what God does. God pursues those who are missing the mark, those who are falling off the way, those who are sinning. This is God's MO, if I can use that abbreviation his modus operandi this is how god works this is why we're preaching an advent sermon series this year which we haven't done at least in the six years that i've been here just to prepare us we're we're praying as a staff as elders we're praying that all of us will know these truths this one specifically that god pursues the sinner that emmanuel is for the sinner I don't want you just to know it, though. I'm not here to just dispense more Bible knowledge and that we walk out of here with a little more facts in our head. No, we want our people, all of us, myself included, we want to embrace the reality of this. We want to believe this, place our trust in this. I want you to feel this deep in your bones. Emmanuel for the sinner. God pursues the sinner. My favorite commentator on 2 Samuel is a gentleman named Dale Ralph Davis. Here's what he writes about this passage. This is such good news. God pursues those who walk away. God will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in sin, but will ruthlessly expose his sin lest he settle down in it. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, but God will come after you. What immense and genuine comfort every servant of Christ should find in the first seven words of this chapter. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Not that God's pursuing grace is enjoyable all the time, right? But what if grace did not pursue? What if God abandoned us when we succeed at sin? Gratefully, he doesn't. He doesn't abandon the sinner. This is why I read from Psalm 51. That's known as David's great psalm of repentance and confession. And he is praying that prayer in Psalm 51 upon the news that he receives here in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David's brokenness is laid bare for everyone in Israel to see. And he sings about it. He writes poetry about it so that the truth may be known. Now, there's a couple of other psalms that we don't normally look at. We look at Psalm 51, and it's wonderful, and that's why I read it, but there's a couple of other psalms where David describes how he was feeling during that nine or 10 or 11 month period of time when he was trying to cover his tracks. Listen to the words of Psalm 32, three and four, and I think they'll be projected on the screen. These describe some of the physical and even emotional consequences of David's sin. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. A little bit longer passage in Psalm 38. I won't put them on the screen, but listen to these words. David goes on in even more graphic detail to describe what he's feeling during this time before he confesses and repents. He says, "'There is no soundness in my flesh "'because of your indignation. "'There is no health in my bones because of my sin. "'For my iniquities have gone over my head "'like a heavy burden. "'They are too heavy for me. "'My wounds stink.'" and fester because of my foolishness i am utterly bowed down i'm prostrate all the day i go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh i am feeble i am crushed i groan because of the tumult of my heart you've been there The good news is God pursues us, those of us who sin, God pursues us as he pursued David here. Again, Charles Spurgeon, such a way with words. What a killing thing is sin, it is a pestilent disease, a fire in the bones, and while we smother our sin, it rages within, and like a gathering wound, it swells horribly and torments terribly. Wow. Here's the really good news, though. God does not cancel David. Our culture would. God chooses not to. But let's make a turn here, because there's more than one person in this story. Nor does God cast off Bathsheba. God does not overlook the person sinned against. He deals differently with Bathsheba than he does with David. Now, Bathsheba is a sinner by nature. And lo and behold, I'm sure she committed acts of sin as well. But in this story, the point is that she is being sinned against. So the second point of our big idea is that Emmanuel is not only for those who have sinned, but Emmanuel is for those who have been sinned against. And we rarely think of that. During this Advent season, as we, we attempt to remember and prepare ourselves to celebrate the coming of our King, let's remember that God with us is also for the one who's been sinned against. The promise of His presence is for that person, that man, that woman, that young person, that child as well. Now, I'm going to tread very lightly here because the Bible treads somewhat lightly here. The scripture contains a boatload of information about David, right? And he writes about this and we've already talked a lot about it and there's so much more that could be said, but I don't think you want me to keep you for four more hours, so. But you know, there's not that much about Bathsheba. There's just not a whole lot of information. There are a few things and I wanna call them to your attention. But I'll be honest with you, this is a difficult part of the message for me because I'm not quite sure exactly how far to go with some of this. But let me, let me make some observations, and then I would encourage you. Be like what the apostle said. Be a good Berean. Go back and study the Word to see if, if what God's Word might say, even additional things for us to better understand. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12 and go... Uh, go toward the end of that chapter. Let me, let me say this, though, about the chapter. This is the chapter where the Lord sends Nathan, and Nathan comes, tells David a story, grabs David's heart, David responds, and then Nathan points his bony prophetic finger at David and says, you are the man. You are the man who has uh, committed sin. You are the man who has stepped out of line. You are the man who is not on the, on the right side of history here. But i am pursuing you and then david of course responds in verse 13 i have sinned against the lord but look at the last couple verses 24 and 25. this is after bathsheba has given birth to that child that was conceived this is after that child dies this is after David arises from mourning. He goes into the house of the Lord and worships. This is after all of that. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. You could supply the word again. And she bore a son. And he, that is David, called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Let's unpack this a little bit. This word comfort, and unfortunately, every single translation, even paraphrase, that I researched this week, they translate the word the same way, comfort. And I'm fearful that that word is going to communicate wrongly as to what's really going on here. In fact, when I shared this with Deb earlier in the week, she goes, she cringed, and she goes, I, I just find that's a difficult thing for me to handle. <laughs> David goes back in and has sexual relations with us Why he's comforting her. It's like, I don't need that kind of comfort. I don't want that kind of comfort. Yuck, right? That's, that's what the English word kind of leaves us to feel about. But, but literally, this word in the Hebrew means much more than that. It has implicit within it the idea of lamenting of grieving, of being sorrowful, and therefore bringing consolation. That's a totally different idea than just the English concept of comfort. In the very next chapter, in chapter 13, there's another terrible story. One of David's sons by a different wife ends up raping a half-sister, a daughter of David by a different wife. And what happens after that is he casts her off. He casts her away. And she lives the rest of her life as a widow, essentially, um, in, 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 in just, just terrible straits and lamenting. And that leads to a whole bunch of other mess, which we won't go into this morning. David doesn't do that. David chooses to bring her into his household to bring her under the cover of his protection, to bring her as his wife, and he chooses to lament with her, to grieve with her, to console her, to bring comfort to her. And as a result of their relations, another child is born. And that child's name means peace. That child's name means shalom. It comes from the same root word, as the word that was referenced earlier this morning, Solomon. But God steps in there and says, Actually, I want you to call him Jedidiah, right? Which means beloved of Jehovah. We see the tables turning again. We see God bringing grace through David to Bathsheba, the one who had been sinned against. We see now God bringing peace or shalom. To this relationship through the birth of another son who is going to carry along this eternal line, this, eternal, this lineage which is going to be eternal, eventually heading to the Messiah. And we see God expressing by changing Solomon's name himself to mean beloved of Jehovah. Frankly, that's all I've got this morning regarding Bathsheba. But the point is this, is that God's grace Through his presence with us is not just for the sinner, but it's also for the person who's been sinned against. Look with me just for a second at Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. We'll we'll project it on the screen here. Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. If you're familiar with with that passage, if we can have it on the screen, if you're familiar with that passage, this is part of the genealogy of the Messiah, the part of the genealogy of Jesus, right? And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. She's unnamed, but we know whom Matthew is referring to here. Bathsheba gets brought into the story of redemption, brought into the lineage of Messiah via this heinous sin of David. If that's not great, God's grace, I don't know what is. God's grace, Emmanuel, is for the one who has been sinned against. Now I think there's a, there's a couple of other New Testament verses that may, may help us to even uh, get a clue or get a better understanding of what's going on here. The first one is this, 1 John chapter 1, verse nine. 1 John 1 verse 9, you may have memorized this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? Let's unpack that a little bit and let's apply it to the story of David and Bathsheba. The message here from John is if and when, it's a first class condition, it's assumed that we're gonna need to confess sins, even those of us who have been regenerated in Jesus. If and when we confess, when we say the same thing, Uh, John uses two Greek words, puts them together, and it means to say the same thing. In other words, to be in agreement with what God says about our sin, to say the same thing about our sin that He says. When we confess our sins, what happens? He is faithful and He is just, and He brings forgiveness for the sinner. He forgives us of our sins. But then notice what else he does. He also cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Bathsheba, in her, as she's crying out, as she's mourning the loss of her husband, as she's being called into a life that was not her original plan, she's crying out as well, but she's crying out about this sin that has been sinned against her. As she confesses that God says, I'm going to cleanse from that as well. I cleanse from all unrighteousness. I bring healing. I bring comfort. I bring cleansing. Emmanuel, God with us, is not just for the sinner. It's for the person who's been sinned against as well. And that's why we have this wonderful promise in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're sitting here this morning and you know you have sinned, I'd ask for a show of hands, but it would be every hand in the room. Emmanuel, God with us, the promise of his presence is for those of us who've sinned. But if you're sitting here this morning and you've been terribly sinned against by someone else, maybe someone in authority or power over you, God knows what that that sin is. You know what that sin is. You've struggled under the weight of that. Confess that other person's sin before God, and he will bring comfort, he will bring healing, he will bring cleansing, because Emmanuel, God with us, is for the person who's been sinned against as well. There are multiple conclusions that can be drawn from this this morning. Let me just mention a few. Both the sinner and the sinned against need Emmanuel need God with us. It is God's presence that brings forgiveness and salvation. It is God's presence that cleanses and heals and comforts. And we know, as we anticipate what we'll celebrate at the end of this month, we know that God's presence comes to us in the person of Jesus. This baby born in a feeding trough, who later grows, teaches, teaches, heals, and then, as Justin read this morning, dies on our behalf, conquers death, rises, ascends, and is now interceding on our behalf. It is in the person of Jesus Christ that we know God's presence. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ that Emmanuel forgives those who have sinned and cleanses and heals and comforts those who have been sinned against. Jesus took on our flesh Emmanuel, so that he might step into our pain, our rejection, our abuse. Forgiveness and healing come from Emmanuel, come from God with us, come in the person of Jesus. Now earlier, we sang, "Oh, come all ye faithful, and we love that. We love that carol, right? It's, It's good that we sang that. We'll sing it again at, at, during the 1045 hour. I'm looking forward to it. But the opening lines of that are, Come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. What about when you're racked with the guilt of sin? What about when you're saddled with the pain of a sin committed against you? How do you sing then? Interesting, a young lady, a hymn writer actually, Lisa Clough in 2020, Realized as she went to church and was supposed to be part of the church choir, they were going to sing, Oh Come All Ye Faithful. She realized, I can't sing that because of some things that had happened in her life. And so instead, she wrote the lyrics to this carol called, Oh Come All You Unfaithful. Listen to these words in conclusion Oh Come All You Unfaithful. Come, weak and unstable. Come, know you are not alone oh come barren and waiting ones weary of praying come see what your god has done christ is born christ is born christ is born for you oh come bitter and broken come with fears unspoken come taste of his perfect love oh come guilty and hiding ones there's no need to run See what your God has done. He's the Lamb who was given, slain for our pardon. His promise is peace for those who believe. So come, though you have nothing. Come, He is the offering. Come, see what your God has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come. Come but not by our own merit. Lord Jesus, you came. You lived among us. You lived just like us, yet without sin. And you died for us, and you rose again for us, so we may live with you and for you. We celebrate your first coming in this season of Advent. And Father, we eagerly anticipate your second coming, when you will make all things right. Come. Lord Jesus, come. Amen.